This morning's scripture reading is from the book of James, chapter 1, verses 18 through 27. In honor of God's word, we ask that those who are able, please rise. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampart wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves." For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing." If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. Happy Mother's Day to all that are and have been mothers. Uh, Much has already been said from God's word and to you, I'm sure. So I just want to say, as a son, thank you. We are very, very grateful for the ways that uh, you live in light of what God is doing in your life and living faithfully into that and caring for others. Um, Your ministry is profoundly deep, and uh, for that we are very grateful. We are uh, in James chapter 1 verses 18 through 27 this morning, taking a short break from our series through First and Second Peter. And in this series so far, in First and Second Peter, we've been really uh, contemplating and thinking about uh, what it, it means to be the church, a called out people, called out of a kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the sun, and how we can live faithfully as sojourners and exiles now in light uh, and in hope of the coming king and the coming kingdom. And James this morning is going to pick up a lot of the same themes that we are already thinking about and already praying through as it relates to First and Second Peter. In uh, the Pew Bibles, if you would like to follow along, you can find James chapter 1, verses 18 through 27 on page 1011. Uh, I do encourage you uh, to follow along as we work through the passage this morning. Um, It is rich with meaning and is worth notating uh, certain aspects of the text um, that sometimes in our translations of the Bible can be obscured or misunderstood. And so I encourage you to have a Bible open as we work through uh, James. And as you're turning there, let me just give you a little bit of context to this letter. The, The letter of James is written by James, who many scholars believe is the brother of Jesus. James was a pillar in the early church, primarily because he was a pastor 
elder, overseer of the church in Jerusalem. And so throughout the book of Acts, you'll see people refer to James as a pillar. And because of that, people look to him for wisdom and insight of what it meant to be the Christian community, both early on and throughout the church's early history. And James wrote this letter, the letter of James, during a time of minimal persecution. There was still kind of some hubbub around Jews and, and some Gentiles persecuting uh, this, small Jew, the, this small community of Jewish Christians. But he's really trying to address some really harsh divisions throughout the book between Christians themselves. And the main reason that he's writing this letter is he wants to give clear and practical instruction as to what it means to live out a genuine Christian faith and how that works out in our lives. More concisely, probably you could say if you read the entire book of James, what you would see is instructions on how to live out the beauty of the gospel in our lives as a Christian community. And so as we dive in, I want us to be having that larger theme in the back of our minds that everything that James is trying to get at is trying to shape us and trying to form us into a community of genuine Christian faith that knows and loves and lives the gospel. And so as we dive into the text, would you guys pray with me that the Lord would help us to understand uh, what he has said through his word, that it might do the same shaping and forming for us as well. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have preserved it down to this very day and that by your spirit you speak to us through it. Lord, I pray as we read the text and meditate on the text and allow it to sink deeply into our hearts that you would show us what it means to be reformed by the gospel in our lives. That we as individuals and as a community, as Grace Church, would exude joy and life and peace and beauty because of the way the gospel is forming us and transforming us as a community. So be with us now. Uh, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. So, I don't know if you guys know this, but it's spring. And, and one of the things that I love about Rochester is actually how fickle the weather is. In our house, uh, on a regular basis, someone will say, hey, if you don't like the weather, wait five minutes and it might be different. Rochester has a hard time kind of knowing what season it is, but one of the things that I really appreciate about our city is that once spring, or maybe summer, whenever time it shows up, whenever new life blossoms and it feels like spring and it feels like summer, our city comes alive. You can see that at the, the attendance of the Lilac Festival. You can see it all throughout the city. People love to be outside, and our city does a really good job, I think, of enjoying herself when the weather is permitting. And what's fascinating about seeing the city come alive is how universal the draw is. It doesn't matter if you're old or if you're young, if you're a Christian or if you're not a Christian, whatever vocation you have, you are drawn to the beauty that is spring. And what's fascinating about this is that it's not just good weather that seems to kind of unite people. We all seem to be universally drawn to beauty. Whether it is receiving flowers on Mother's Day, whether it is going on a quiet hike, whether it is listening to a string quartet down at uh, East School of Eastman Music, uh, checking out the latest Marvel movie, maybe admiring a painting at the mag, or maybe it's just sitting on your porch checking out a beautiful sunset. We are all universally drawn to beauty. 
But what's interesting is that we're not just drawn to observe it, while these are all great examples of that, we also are universally drawn to want to participate in beauty. We buy season tickets to the RPO or to the Mac. We wait in long lines to buy the latest iPhone. We plant a garden in our yards, and we take a picture of a sunset and post it on social media so that we can share it to the world. We don't just want to behold beauty, we want to participate in it. It's as if we believe that if we just experience enough beauty in our lives, maybe we too will be beautiful. That there's this deep longing in the heart of every person to behold and to be beautiful. But the problem is, is that in all of our experiences, we know that beauty fades. The flowers will die. The symphony will come to a close. That sunset will fade. N.T. Wright in his book, Simply Christian, points this out. Indeed, the beauty sometimes seems to be in the itching itself, the sense of longing, the kind of pleasure which is exquisite and yet leaves us unsatisfied. As we experience beauty, what we, what we discern is that despite our deepest longings for beauty, it always seems to elude us. And if we dwell on this fact of the elusiveness of beauty long enough, and without God's Word at our aid, we're actually going to be brought to tears because it's utterly hopeless if you really start to think about how transient beauty can be. And the reality is, is that the reason that this bothers people so much is because we know that is not how it is supposed to be. And God's Word agrees. In the beginning and in how things will end, God's Word declares this mysterious and glorious promise. The lion will lay down with the lamb. Death will be no more, and the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as, the, as waters cover the sea. That our deepest longings for beauty will be realized in the new heavens and in the new earth. But in our passage this morning, we're going to hear a claim. We're going to see something that's even more mysterious than what I just said. The reality is, is that the scriptures say in our passage this morning that in Christ we are experiencing a taste of that future reality, of that restored everlasting beauty. In this passage this morning, Christians, we are described as the first fruits of God's new creation. Our lives in Christ are to be a glimpse of the future and coming kingdom. Among all of the transient beauty that we see in our lives, we, in our lives in Christ, are to be garden flowers in the middle of a desert. But what we'll see in the passage this morning is that this doesn't just happen. It's something that is done to us by the Holy Spirit, but is something that by grace we need to respond to and to participate in. And we need to realize that the way, the only way to a truly beautiful life is to be reformed by the gospel in our entire being. And that to be reformed by the gospel, we really need to do three things. We need to know our roots we need to adopt a new character, and we need to embody new habits, all in light of the gospel. So if you'll go to the text, if you'll read with me, well, let's dive into that first idea that to be reformed by the gospel, to follow the way that truly leads to beauty, 
we must know our roots. You look in, in verses 18 and 19. James says, of his own will, of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers. So, genealogy and ancestry research has been around for a long time. Arguably, you could say it's been around for a millennium. But in the last 20 years or so, there has been a profound kind of influx of DNA testing. You can go online, you can do a little search, and there are plenty of ways that you can, it's really gross actually, you spit into a tube, and then you get these results back of your ancestry and of all of the different genetic ways that they can research how you are connected to different people groups and different family groups throughout the world. And I was doing a little bit of research, just trying to figure out, you know, what, what is so interesting? Why are people so drawn to this experience of DNA testing, or Ancestry.com, or 23andMe. And I went to 23andMe's website, and I, I watched uh, a really fascinating video about a customer's experience. This is a guy named Jordan. He's a middle-aged man from California, and here's what he said about his experience of 23andMe, of going and learning about his heritage. He says, I all, I've always wanted to know more about my family history so that I could have a better sense of myself. I wanted to get down to the root of my origins and I wanted to get to know the people who made me, me. It's not fascinating to think that for, for Jordan, this guy in California, going and spending money to find out his genetic connection to people in the past really wasn't about kind of walking through the corridors of history. It was about Jordan desiring a keen sense of who he actually is. And James does this exact same thing in verses 18 and 19. What he is saying in verses 18 and 19 is that by knowing our new roots in the gospel, you can have a profound new and keen sense of who you are. The first thing that James says in verse 18 is he says that you are God's good idea. If you want to know your roots, you must begin with God. In Genesis 1, God created the world, and he did so intentionally and carefully and beautifully. And he did all this by the word of his power. But we see in, in verse 18 that it says, in redemption, God brought us forth by his will. So no, ma no matter how we feel about ourselves, today. We can trust and we can look to the truth about ourselves in the gospel that our lives, that your life and your life in Christ is not an accident and it's not a mistake. All the details, all the struggles, all the complexities of our lives, these are orchestrated, designed by God for his glory and for your good. It says that you were brought forth of his own will. You are God's good idea. You are not the beginning of your origins. And how you feel today about yourself or about your life is not the beginning of your story. You are God's good idea. And God is the one that will help us make sense of who we are. The second thing that James says is that not only are we God's good idea, that we were brought forth by his will, 
but that you are God's beloved child. In verses 18 and 19, it says that he brought us forth. The Greek word that is translated brought us forth, it literally means to beget or to give birth to. In the gospel, what you are seeing is the reality of your true rebirth. Through the gospel, we know that it's not only our origin that is from God, but our relationship with God is, is radically changed. Not just as a creature, but as a son or as a daughter. The implication of this is so glorious that it's actually difficult to really grasp. And here's the simple truth. In Christ, God loves you as a father loves a child. He loves you intentionally. He loves you carefully, and he loves you beautifully because you are God's good idea. This thing that's happening in your life, this redemption, this restoration of beauty is God's plan. It's his idea. His name is at stake for what's going on in your life. And you are God's child. For many of us, this is where our reformation needs to begin. Instead of believing that you're the author of your story, you need to dwell on your roots in the gospel. The Heidelberg Catechism says this very well. And we would do well to meditate and to think and to mull over these things on a regular basis. The first question in the Heidelberg Catechism says, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. When you are rejoicing at a graduation or a new opportunity or a beautiful family that you may be with this afternoon, Know that you are not your own. You belong to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. When you are feeling desperately overwhelmed by the anxieties of life, or you are filled with grief beyond your ability to explain, know that you are not your own. You belong to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And when things feel normal, and everything seems like it's just fine, everything is fine, Know that you are not your own, but that you belong to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Church, this is where the roots need to begin. We need to say to ourselves every morning, I am God's good idea in Christ. I am God's beloved child. And allow that to shape and to form us for the day, for the week, for the month, for our life. But James doesn't stop here. It's not just about knowing your roots. James says that if we're going to pursue the way of beauty, then we need to not only be reformed by knowing our roots, but we need to be reformed by the gospel by adopting a new character. Read with me verses 19 through 21. It says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Knowing our roots 
will not only reform us, but it's going to lead directly to us desiring a new character. If we are truly brought forth by God's word, then God's word is going to reshape who we are in our lives. And James says that this is going to happen in two ways. It's going to look like relinquishing your sin, and it's going to look like receiving Christ's righteousness. Look in verses uh, 19 through 21. He says, Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, and therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. James is getting at something that's echoed in Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22, Paul writes, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. But in James, he doesn't like to deal with ambiguities. James is really going to go after what these deceitful desires look like in our lives. He's not going to be ambiguous. He's going to pin it down and he's going to say, what deceitful desires really look like in your life is anger in your heart and played out through your speech in the body. James is really echoing what he learned from Jesus. In Luke chapter 6, verse 45, Jesus taught that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our tongues are always betraying who we really are. That if our hearts are filled with anger and filled with sinful desire, that will eventually come out. There's no hiding it. But James isn't simply trying to draw attention to sins of speech. What he's not doing is saying, therefore, look at the people around you who have explosive anger and don't know how to control their tongue. He does say that later in James. But what he's doing right now is he's trying to not necessarily draw attention to the type of sin, but to the heart of sin. So Aristotle, philosopher, he rightly pointed out that anger is the emotional response that everybody gets when they perceive that they are experiencing injustice. Anger is directly related to your sense of justice and your sense of beauty and your sense of good. And the heart of sinful anger is pride. It's a belief that one's desires are not only necessary, but ultimately justified. That your kingdom, your way of doing things, of getting things, of having things, is the right way. And when anybody encroaches on that ability of yours to control your life, anger is what you feel because you perceive those things as injustice. And James says that type of life does not correspond with God's righteousness. So give it up. It's not going to produce righteousness or beauty or goodness in your life. Relinquish your sin, your desire for control. And instead, he turns the coin to the other side and he says, instead of sin, relinquish it and receive Christ's righteousness. In verse 21, he says, Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. The word received in the Greek is associated with the idea of receiving the gift of friendship or the gift of hospitality. And as anyone knows, I'm sure we've all experienced this, when you receive the gift of friendship or the gift of hospitality that you know you can't repay, 
the emotional experience in your life is exactly the opposite of anger. It's exactly the opposite of pride or sense of control. What you're experiencing in that moment when you receive the gift of friendship or the gift of hospitality is meekness. Uh, BlueLetterBible.com, their uh, definition of meekness was so good, I didn't even know how to cite where I was getting this definition, but it's just phenomenal. Meekness is that disposition of spirit in which we accept God's dealings with us as good and therefore without disputing or resisting. The meek are those who wholly rely on God rather than their own strength to defend against injustice. That is really profound. Meekness is trusting God in the face of perceived injustice because we trust God more than ourselves. We refuse to defend ourselves because God is our defender. That should bother you, right? If you don't look out for yourself, who's going to do it? If you don't try to protect yourself and the things that you have, it's all going to go away, guys. But this is really, really key to understanding James. True meekness cannot be faked. The reason why it can't be faked is that it's born out of recognizing that our righteousness, what makes us good and beautiful and right and true, is not with us. It's been given to us by Christ as a gift a glorious and profound gift of friendship and hospitality, his life, his death, his resurrection on our behalf, the forgiveness of our sins. We have received the gospel by faith, and it is an implanted word of grace and an imputed righteousness in our lives that is able to save our souls. We no longer need to defend ourselves. You no longer need to have the life of control. You have been justified, defended, and protected in Christ. But James doesn't want meekness to be a concept. He doesn't want you to have a good definition of meekness. He wants you to know what it looks like. So in verse 19, he says, Therefore, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Meekness looks like three things, guys a listening ear, a shut mouth, and a compassionate heart. When you are with others, do you care about what's going on in their lives or do you just want to talk about yourself? When your mouth is shut, are you just waiting for your turn to talk or does your silence communicate attentiveness? Are you listening in order to love another person or are you listening to judge and control another person? These behaviors all reveal two things. They, they reveal that if you do these things, you believe that your actions are what actually justify you before God and before others because you need to control your life to prove it to them, to prove it to God, and especially to prove it to yourself. And second, if these things are happening in your life, it shows you that you're really filled up with a sinful desire 
and an inappropriate, inordinate sense of injustice. You're trying to be holier than God, or you are trying to define holiness without God. This can be very convicting, I know, for myself. And I'm grateful that James doesn't say, so sit in your sin and despair. He says, no, if this is you, don't despair. There is hope. Christ died for your sin, so relinquish it. Christ rose for your new life, so receive that life, that new character, as a gift. To help us in this, I think it is really wonderful to know that God has given us throughout the centuries ways that we can move toward adopting this new character in our lives. One of the ways that we can do this is by thinking. Another way that we can do this is by acting in alliance with this new character that we have been given in Christ. And we do that through spiritual disciplines, the means of God's grace in our lives. There are two disciplines that I want to point out to you that would help you tremendously if you see yourself not as quick to hear or slow to speak or slow to anger. And those are the spiritual disciplines of solitude and silence. In solitude, you intentionally remove yourself from others so that you can meet with God and meditate on his word that is being spoken directly to you. And in silence, you intentionally refrain from talking in order to trust that God's word to you is far more important than your words to him or your words to another person. The disciplines of silence and solitude, when taken seriously, can have a transforming effect on how we experience this new character claimed for us and given to us in Christ. I really encourage you guys to practice these. If you've never done it before, if you've never intentionally removed yourself from people or intentionally participated in silence, start today. Take 10 minutes this afternoon. Be still before the Lord and rehearse the reformation of the gospel in your life. But like I said, James is not concerned with just shaping how you think. And really, his ultimate goal is not simply to create pockets of individual Christians who know how to sit in silence and in solitude. He wants to create a community that is living out the beauty of the gospel. And so he says to be reformed by the gospel, not only do you need to know your roots or adopt a new character, you need to embody the new habits of the gospel. Read with me in, in verses 22 through 25. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he's like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Uh, in his book, The Power of Habit, uh, Charles Duhigg uh, explores the science behind habits and why we do what we do and how we do what we do and how habits really shape our lives for better or for worse. And in his book, uh, he writes about uh, Tony Dungy. Now, I am not a sports person, 
So I had to literally research Tony Dungy, which is very embarrassing. But I was really, really blown away by this, this man's testimony. Tony Dungy, uh, as many of you may know, uh, is a Christian, but also a former head coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, so an NFL team. And Dungy's strategy and coaching insights took the Tampa Bay Buccaneers from being really a terrible team to being Super Bowl worthy. Here's what Dungy had to say about habits. Dungy says, champions don't do extraordinary things. They do ordinary things, but they do them without thinking, too fast for the other team to react. What they're doing is following the habits that they've learned. Here's the brilliant insight of Dungy and the brilliant insight of James. The key to reformation in your life is not more knowledge. It is habitual obedience. If Dungy had continued to focus on knowledge of the game, the Buccaneers would, have been, would not have been transformed as a team. They would have just known more about football. Instead, what Dungy focused on was making small and intentional and incremental changes to completely reform how all of his players approach the game of football. Like Dungy, if we're going to be reformed by the gospel, then we need to focus less on trying to get more knowledge and more on trying to embody the new habits of obedience claimed for us in Christ. Or as James might put it, we need to obey to remember, and we need to remember to obey. Look at the passage again in verses 22 through 25. James points and paints a picture of a weird and strange person. James says, listen, if you're going to hear God's word, if you're going to actually listen to the gospel and not live in light of it, you are like a guy who after seriously and intentionally studying himself, walks away and completely forgets what he saw. That doesn't make any sense to us. How do you do that? How do you go to a mirror, look at yourself, really study, really go intently on understanding yourself, turn away from that image, and completely forget what you've seen. Notice that James is not faulting what the man did. In this verse, as well as many others, like Hebrews chapter 4, God's word is proclaimed to be designed like a mirror. It's designed to reveal our true nature. But the problem isn't with his technique. The problem is with his memory. So what does he need to do differently? He doesn't need to go back to the mirror and look harder. He doesn't need to go back to the mirror and study longer. What he needs to do is he needs to act in relationship to what he sees. The man needs to get his knowledge into his body. He needs to learn the habit of obedience. The goal of the Christian life is not biblical knowledge or even a personal religious experience. The goal of the Christian life is habitual and single-minded obedience to God's Word. To aim at anything else in our lives is to live in religious delusion. That's what James is saying. That's what God's Word is saying to us. If you're going to simply read the Bible and do nothing with it, just stop reading. 
But if you long to be reformed by the gospel, to walk in the way that leads to a beautiful life, then you need to embody the new habits that are given to you through intentional obedience to God's word. Here's how James applies this to our lives. He says, if anyone thinks that he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Instead, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. Visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. James says, as you look at God's word, as you embody these new habits given to you in the gospel, it's defined by three things. Meekness in your heart, love for others, and holiness in your life. In short, what James is saying is that the life reformed by the gospel just looks like Jesus in all the affairs of daily life, in how we work alongside our coworkers, in how we relate and love and serve our families, in how we relate and serve one another as a church community, as we love and serve and seek to be as a neighborhood always looking like Jesus. It's through these three things, these very practical habits of meekness, love, and holiness, that James paints a picture for us as to what God is trying to create in the new heavens and the new earth. This is what God sees as beautiful. And you can see it in verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God. God's vision, beauty that is in the eye of the ultimate beholder, looks like meekness of heart, love for others, and holiness of life. It looks like Jesus. Because Jesus is everlasting beauty, his kingdom will be everlasting beauty, and a world that is shaped by the gospel will be a beautiful life that will not fade, that will be eternally realized, both now and forever. And so if we understand that this is the way to a beautiful life, then we need to really recognize that the way to pursue that is to be reformed by the gospel in our lives. We can do that through intentional spiritual disciplines, seeking to know our roots, that we are God's good idea, that we are God's beloved children. We can do that by being reformed by the gospel and ad adopting a new character of meekness, not trying to defend ourselves or justify ourselves or build up our lives through a sense of control, but just relinquishing sin and receiving the righteousness given to us in Christ and resting in that. And lastly, it looks like a life reformed by the gospel embodied in the new habits of love for others and holiness and intentional obedience. This is what James says is going to equip us to be the beautiful sojourners and exiles that we are called to be as we wait for Christ to return in his coming kingdom. You know as well as I do that you long for beauty. 
And today, as you go out and celebrate Mother's Day, you are going to have moments where you experience beauty and rejoice. And it is my hope and it is my prayer that by really, really thinking deeply about God's Word, that every moment of beauty would remind you that that is what God is seeking through the gospel in your life and in the world. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that declares to us the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. That by your stripes, Lord Jesus, we are healed. That we are made beautiful because of what you have done. And that you are remaking us and will be remaking the world so that beauty would be everlasting of an experience. Help us, Lord, to reform our lives by the gospel to rest in the salvation that you have for us and to rejoice in what you are doing among us. In Jesus' name, amen.